listening to Blackbird Nine's Breakfast Club with your host, Frederick C. Blackburn. I'd like to thank everyone for coming out to the Trading Post this evening. Tonight's episode is episode 79, Independence from Whom? And tonight what I want to do is look at the history of the War of, for U.S. Independence of 1776. And want to look at it a little bit differently than I think a lot of people have been looking at it recently. A lot of good research been done. A lot of good uh, videos came out this week. A lot of good uh, articles came out. I learned a lot. Um, but uh want to take a little bit different slant at it. And if you'd like to join us, you can come out to the chat room at bb9tradingpost.chitango.com. That's bb9tradingpost.chitango.com. And see several other people are joined us now. George1951, Mer Bailey. And I said, say, say, I hear Mr. Detox the Kool-Aid. Welcome, good sir. Miss Lily Valley, welcome. Several Anons. Welcome, Anons, as we always say at the Trading Post. At the Trading Post, first rule of Trading Post, be nice to newbies. Second rule of Trading Post, everyone's a newbie. So with that said, come out and join us. The great experiment uh, is such a tricky thing to look at because I have to acknowledge that the original system as designed is not what we have now. So, you know, that's one level of saying, okay, what they were going for with things like the Articles of Confederacy, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution are very, very different than what you know we have now. Because we're on this side of the Civil War, the War of Northern Aggression, the War of Jewish machinations that basically pushed the, uh, the system further over to the great work of the Talmudic Noahide model and away from the original peer-to-peer distributed great experiment model. And, of course, the 1871 uh, incorporation of the United States, and that's when it moved from these United States to the United States. And we've talked in previous shows about uh, the Jewish need to always consolidate power. If you're always trying to centralize power uh, instead of having any type of distributed system. So these are a people that their end game is to build a temple. And they claim it's they're rebuilding Solomon's temple, but yet they can't provide any hard evidence that Solomon's temple ever existed other than as a story that they use for both training and propaganda purposes. And the whole Solomon Temple thing is key to understanding Freemasonry and the New World Order and the role that the Jewish supremacists, the uh, Zionists, have played from day one with the Freemasons and before that, the Knight Templars. And before that, we have no idea because... um, you know, it's. I'm trying to remember who said it, but somebody posted that secret societies have almost always been about Jews controlling Gentiles. Because if you traced, you know, they were talking about, I think, more modern secret societies, uh, that you always find the Jew at the top of the power. You know, they might have a puppet there, like the worshipful master of a lodge, maybe a Gentile. But we know now that the power system is still the you know, benign breath and the whole Jewish system. Uh, but you know, I just see that as I guess a little bit of a cynicism. But I can't dispute it of these modern systems. But I think a lot of the traditional mystery systems from all over the world is basically providing the extra information, the extra training to people that are going to be in leadership roles that your basic person 
one, doesn't care about, and two, doesn't really understand. And it's that old adage of a little information is a dangerous thing when you get somebody that's going to chimp out over a little bit of knowledge um, without being able to see the bigger picture involved. So uh, I think especially when you look at the Greek systems, uh, the European systems of initiation, and again, people like Joseph Campbell have done great research on this, Mary Louise von Franz, uh, Carl Jung, Manley P. Hall, uh, to name a few. Uh, also, um, looking at the fairy tales as initiation, and the work that people like Robert Bly have done, uh, the woman he worked with so much, but uh, I'll think about it later. But anyway, you know, I, we are looking at history as people who have been deceived. And we're seeing that now, that you know, this was a big deception. This was social programming. This is not what it seems. And so you tend to turn everything into the negative, that there was never anything good about any of it. And uh, that's the old saying of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that with me, I always try to find the truth in all these systems and how they built on each other uh, and how they developed organically and to see that there, you know, at the core was goodness. There wasn't the deception. And then you compare that to systems like the Talmud, for example, where it's all about deception. I mean, the Jews say war by deception. That's the Mossad, the elite Jewish best of the best, it's all about deception and how to use control. We talk a lot about the five B's, you know, that you bully people, you bribe people, you blackmail people, you banish people, and then you bury people. Uh, And it's that intransigent master mindset and that everybody else is either a good and loyal slave or a beaten slave or a dead uppity Amalek. You know, you can't have somebody that's going to challenge your authority in the system. They're either with the system or you have to take them out. But when you look at what was going on with the New World and you research both the literature of the time, the church sermons of the time, the speeches of the time, and you see so much optimism in those and this fascination of the sciences that you know we have begun to understand natural phenomenon and re- can recreate it in a lab and you think that people like Benjamin Franklin one of the founding fathers who has a very curious role and if anybody would probably be up there as one of the most likely deceivers, it probably would be him. Because when you look at how he was such a manipulator behind the scenes, and while he never was president, uh, he was, I think, the only one who signed three of the main documents of this period, you know, with the treaties and the declarations, etc. And so you look at his role, uh, But, you know, he was also a brilliant scientist. And his work on electricity set the standard. And just talk about a shift in Overton window about what lightning is and what electricity is, what magnetism is. Dr. Franklin toured the world doing real experiments. He was the original Mr. Wizard, uh, you know, versus, you know, Bill Nye, the July guy. Uh, and you know, he was just world-renowned as a scientist. And when you look at people like Thomas Jefferson, yeah, they were statesmen, but they were also brilliant scientists and inventors. And so the idea of having a scientifically designed form of government for the new world versus 
the existing power systems of both existing Europe with the royal families and history. You know, they were very educated men. They knew Roman history. They knew Egyptian history. They knew how all of these kingdoms and empires rose and fell. And so as scientists, they were trying to figure out a new form of government that was not based on old precepts of ordained by God, for example, or the royal heir, the sire's heir. Uh, and you know, how we've talked a lot about how far that goes back with the, you know, the old uh, fertility cult religions and the, the uh, widow's sons. You know, who were these special children that were the sires of the sun king uh, and why they had leadership roles in the tribe and the community and how they were the first child was different than the other children. Uh, and you know, so all of these things, so that these men were looking at this totally different and saying, you know, could we use this new science to create a form of government? Now, immediately, I could see people getting triggered all over the place saying exactly, you know, 17, I actually heard somebody post on Twitter that to one of my uh, comments this week that 1776 was 1984, and a pretty big black pill. And then, you know, you also know that a lot of these people, like Franklin, had a dark side that they, you know, for example, Franklin is reported to have uh, visited the Hellfire Club numerous, as George 1951 talks about. And there's even in his autobiography, if memory serves, he does a discourse on blood drinking, uh, you know, and analyzes blood drinking. And uh, I don't know if it's disinformation or fact, but there's, you know, a, a lot of this bashing of the founding fathers is Jewish propaganda to make people turn away from the system that they created. And you see time and time again, these Jewish supremacists say, we're going to bash on dead white guys and keep on bashing dead white guys until we achieve white genocide. We don't want the youth to have any leadership in their own area that they can look up to. You know, we need you all looking up to our leadership. You know, so uh, don't look at Thomas Jefferson or James Madison or John Adams. Look at Abby Hoffman. Look at you know uh, uh, Jack Ru- or Jerry Rubens. You know, those should be your leaders. That's the kind of thing that we were taught uh, during uh, the 60s and 70s, uh, that, you know, you shouldn't uh, believe in the United States. The United States has turned on you. You know, we need revolution for this new world order. Uh, so you know, you've got so much anti-Founding Fathers history out there, and I always think it's a very unfair thing to judge people in history by your moral standards and, you know, uh, you know where you are. And I just keep trying to get my uh, head into what it would have been like in the colonies of the United States when they were devising the systems. Okay, and then uh, how you had competing systems that were just aghast, uh, shocked, outraged, at what those impotent Americans, as Sith Lord Rothschild called them, uh, were coming up with, especially with the clauses on the government should print its and coin its own money. And that was a huge no-no in the great work. As we all know, the great work, only the Jews get to be the bankers. Kind of like playing Monopoly with your sister, and she always has to be the banker. Um, you know, the Jews insist on handling all the money, handling all the gold, etc. And anybody who stands up against that, they will kill. 
ruthlessly. You know, if you don't have a Rothschild central bank, expect, expect any time now for CNN to say you're the new Hitler. Uh, and so, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, Ignatiev, uh, is that his name? Ignatius. <laughs> it reminds me of the Ignatius character in uh, that story. Um, but um, anyway, uh, so what I want to play you first is a clip from the late, great Judge Scalia. And this was an interview he did uh, with Piers Morgan, who is, the, as it says here, the insufferable British leftist Piers Morgan, uh, who contemptuously describes the founding fathers as random guys who are unworthy of reverencing, reverence, demonstrating his ignorance of the subject. So uh, this is a short clip. It's a minute and 27 seconds, and I hope it's going to play cleanly. I worked really hard on this. <laughs> I get a gold star. Why do you have such faith in those politicians of that time? You know, I mean, these days, if, some, if the current crop of politicians created some new constitution, people wouldn't have the faith, the young burning, unflinching faith that you have. <clears throat> Why are you so convinced that these guys, over 200 years ago, were so right? You have to read the Federalist Papers to answer that question. Uh, I don't think anybody in the, in the, in the current Congress could, could write even one of those numbers. These... These men were very, very thoughtful. I truly believe that uh, there, there are times in history when a genius uh, bursts forth at, at some part of the globe, you know, like uh, 2000 BC in, in, in Athens or, or Quinquecento Florence for art. And I think one of those places was 18th century America, America for political science. You know, what Madison said that uh, he told the, the people uh, assembled at the convention, gentlemen, we are engaged in the new science of government. Nobody had ever tried to design a government scientifically before. They were brilliant men. And uh, um, wish we had a few of them now. I wish we had a few of them now. And I'm, I certainly do not favor tinkering with with what they put together okay so that i thought was a very interesting take of these men were trying to scientifically design a self-ruling government system that was revolutionary in the sense that it was distributed not centralized and you have to keep in mind before the war of northern aggression you had a republic built up of independent states. And the governors of those states were in charge. And it was only after the Jewish and Masonic machinations of the Civil War where you had that power shift and the, you know, the consolidation of power into the United States of America was suddenly the federal government trumped all the state governments and that was you know a key power shift from the original model but you know this idea of you know a distributed system with the distributed power system and it goes down to the individual where the individual at the end of this map of the system has private property rights has personal rights and all those things that just flew in the face of these Talmudic scholars of the day who were still trying to turn the new world into a Jewish slave plantation syndicate, where basically they were controlling supply and demand. They had the shipping industries. They had uh, moving the product from Africa to the New World. The majority went to South America versus North America. They don't tell you that. I'm sure Mr. William Fleming over at Willie Fleming over at ASU doesn't mention that. You know, they look at everybody else as Goyim, and so they're trying to set up this system, and, you know, always in the back of their mind is someday they're going to get Israel back and rule the world, but for the time being, we just have to rule everything we can. And so they're trying to you know, set up 
the New World as a slave plantation. And so you've got these two competing systems fighting each other. And what seems to be a big gray area of the intellectuals of the time, both at this new national level, but also at the local levels, is the introduction of Freemasonry into the great experiment. And when you look at um, how Freemasonry developed uh, in the New World, uh, it was there from day one. I mean, uh, so, you know, we go back and I'm bringing up my timeline here. So, you know, we remember that in 1349 in England, Freemasons, first time it shows up is in 1349 in a document King Edward signed as the Ordinance of Laborers. So here you see this Freemason model starting to develop in England um, before the New World. Um, And then in fourteen, you know, in the early fourteen hundreds, is where you start seeing lots of Freemasonry specific laws being written, uh, and also anti Freemason laws. So you start to see that this group is being, you know, rising enough to be a visible force, and so they're not only demanding, you know laws that will benefit them, but also people are passing laws to protect themselves from this uh, group uh, or this team effort. And so one of the things, you know, we've learned is that if you have a team of people working together versus the same number of individuals all working separately, the team is going to win usually. Uh, And so that's what we see with both Judaism and Freemasonry is you're working with a coordinated system and part of the great experiment was this idea of the individuals and that's one of the things they took from Freemasonry was on the level playing for you know of the checkered board square all men are created equal so everybody starts out at the same place that does not mean all men are equal it means everybody in this meritorious system has to start at zero. That, you know, we all start here, and then it's how far you can achieve, and you're not to be hindered by the old world systems like you're not from the proper noble family. You know, man can make it on his own merits. Now, it is very clear from everything we've researched, that they were defining men as European men. And I know a lot of people like to argue about that, but that's where their headsets were, that they, you know, they did not see other people being able to handle this model they were creating. Uh, then... Okay, uh, for example, in 1717, uh, pushback, the British Secret Intelligence Service began a systematic purge, the ranks of Freemasonic of Catholic influences. So here, one of the things about Freemasonry was this idea of anybody could be a Freemason, and the system was independent of whatever Bible was our holy book was on that altar. And that's one of the things people need to realize about Freemasonry is you can have a temple 
or a lodge with a King James version of the Bible on the altar between the three great lights, or you could just as easily have the Hindu Vedas, or you could have a Quran. Uh, and that is you know, symbolic of saying Freemasonry is above you know, all those other systems, um, for good or bad. Uh, then in 1717, the Grand Lodge of England is established. Now that's very key, because as we see in the New World, the lodges were very, very different. They were very, very independent. Some were more influenced by English Freemasonry. More, some were more influenced by French Freemasonry. You had two main groups in the United, or what would become the United States. You had the ancients and the moderns. And what's interesting there is that uh, they had different opinions on the cause of secession for the colonies. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But, you know, so that Grand Lodge of England was established. And by the time all was said and done, all the Freemason lodges in the United States now have a charter to the Grand Lodge of England. And that should be a red flag that you, know, you don't have a Grand Lodge of the United States. It goes back to the Grand Lodge of England, and that is completely under Jewish Talmudic control. But it, when it started out, it was not always like that from my research. So I'm sure people can want to argue with that, that it's, you know, it's been bad since the beginning and just have a total black pill approach to this. But uh, now... North Carolina, St. John's Lodge was dedicated in 1717, making it officially the first Masonic Lodge, while technically Solomon's Temple Lodge was the first lodge and was much older. However, since Solomon's Temple Lodge did not have a charter to the English Grand Lodge, it was purged from history as being apocryphal, for example. So you had these independent lodges that had their own view of the rituals uh, be it you know, Egyptian or the King Solomon thing. Uh, and there was a lot of pressure put on them to join the Grand Lodge. And basically, if they didn't, then they would be tagged as apocryphal and that other Masons weren't to associate with them. And these lodges would usually die. Um. In 1723, the first book of Freemason Constitutions was published. Now, that idea there, when you look at it in our timeline of how we went from law being whatever the Grand Poobah, be it the Queen or the King, said is law, and they have the right to kill you if you disobey the law, to... Hammurabi's uh, stele, which was you know literally the law written in stone, to this modern model of a book on paper of constitutions that are added piecemeal and removed so that it can be changed. It's not written in stone anymore. So you get this static to dynamic aspect of the system design. So this idea of the Book of Constitutions, which was uh, people wrote things and you would uh, use Robert's Rules of Order and you would introduce it. And if you got a second, you could call for a vote. People could ask for amendments. You could ask for a study group to you know develop it further. Uh, and then you would have a vote on it. And depending on how significant it was, either a majority vote would carry or a two-thirds vote or a three-quarters vote. Uh, but, you know, these were the type of systems that were being developed around the people that were also going to be trying to create this new man-made governance system, scientifically designed independent rule governance system. Um. In 1723, James Anderson wrote and published the Constitutions of the Freemasons for the Lodges in London and Westminster. 
This work was reprinted, reprinted in Philadelphia in 1734 by Benjamin Franklin, who was that year elected Grand Master of the Masons of Pennsylvania. So, you know, we see again, Ben Franklin was not just your entered apprentice porch mason. He was a gr- not only master of the lodge, but the Grand Master. Uh, so, yeah, that was a lot of power and a lot of influence at a very international scale. Now, in 1733, in the American Colony, St. John's Lodge was one of the first three Freemason lodges established on the American continent uh, And yeah, so here you know you see the Freemason lodges in North Carolina. You see them in Boston. You see them in Philadelphia. This was all over the colonies, just like you had your churches. And what so many of these men were really thinking from, if you read their scriptures or their sermons, their writings, their diaries, etc., was they viewed masonry as kind of advanced spiritual study, scriptural study. Uh, you, you, you have your Gospels as the fundamentals in your church, but you know you got the smartest and best and brightest together for advanced work in Freemasonry. And that was kind of the mindset, and it's uh, but you know, keep in mind, there's always been that hidden hand in the back of Freemasonry that so many of these people I don't think understood about at all. Uh, and we talked about you know the three levels. You know, in, uh, in Freemasonry, you always have the entered apprentice, the fellow craft, the master mason, and we talk about in other type systems uh, you have. For example, military system, you have the private with the single chevron, you have the corporal with the uh, double chevron, you know, of the body, corporal. And then, uh, you know, the private, you know, what's the biggest thing about a private? Can you keep your mouth shut? Can you keep a secret? You know, can you not give away position? Can you not give away plans? Can you not, you know, basically, can you keep a pledge of silence? Corporal, you know, this is not the but private. Yeah, this is beyond private first class, where this is your gung-ho person that really is into it and wants to go to the next level. And then you have the sergeant, uh, the three chevrons. And one of the things you see in Freemasonry, especially as it got more and more corrupted, is the uh, person who is no longer the naive uh Zealot that you know completely believed in the system and you know would work for the system with all their heart and soul because they truly believed in it. Suddenly, you kind of have the stagehand there who sees that it's a deception. There's a ruse. There's an ulterior motive, and that's just the official story to sell it to gullible schmucks but you continue to go along with it. And so it's that two-faced thing of the sergeant where you can lead men into battle even though that you know that the uh, powers that be are setting them up for uh, a false flag, for example, where they're going to be the cannon fodder that's going to launch the next stage. And that idea of the deception where you're playing both sides. And this is that checkerboard, Jacob and Boaz type mentality that starts to come in with these Machiavellian things of deception, where you know the official story is BS, but it's a good story. But what really matters is the power here. Uh, And so that kind of poison, I think, has always been in the Jewish-based Freemason system, that at the bottom of the day, they... You know it is not truth, uh, complete truth. Uh, It is a power system to achieve an end. 
And so that kind of uh, wising up and seeing the world for what it is, but continuing to go along with it because the perks are so good or the penalties are so bad. And that's the other thing about blood oath systems is if you continue to go along with it, you'll be rewarded. If you don't go along with it, then they will kill you. And that's basically how it worked. Um, Now, in 1737, the Order of the Palladium, which was a Luciferian group, was founded in Paris. And when you look at that system, and you start researching like things like the uh, Illumini with uh, Adam Weshop and stuff, you start to see this big overlay of people playing both sides of this New World experiment in the colony. Uh, especially you know, later on, people like Albert Pike, his Scottish Rite uh, system was very much influenced by this Order of the Palladium Luciferian group in 1737. Okay, and then... Um, yeah, this is also when the church... Uh, Yeah, Pope Clement XII issued a papal bull against Freemasonry in 1738. So now you start to see this pushback against Freemasonry from the Catholic Church that we also saw for the same reasons against the Ninth Templar and the Priory of Zion in the earlier times, and for a lot of the same reasons. Um, And now we're talking, going back about the uh, moderns and the ancients. Uh, the Antient Grand Lodge uh, was the rival group from the moderns. Benjamin Franklin was a modern, but at the time he died, his lodge had gone over to the ancients and would no longer recognize him as one of his own and declined to give him a Masonic burial at his funeral. That was another big thing about the Catholic Church, was Masonic funeral versus last rites. And this Masonic body, after all Benjamin Franklin had done, after this merger with the ancients and the moderns, uh, they refused to give him full Masonic honors. Now, the schism really... uh, heated up during the Revolutionary War uh, because trying to find this so I get it right. I always forget which one was which. Oh, well. I'll look it up later, but you know, just keep in mind that you know the ancients uh, thought that uh, one way, and the moderns thought another way. I.e., one thought the colony should stay with the crown and that system, which we know is Bank of England and the Jewish city of London controlling the English crown to create the empire, and the other was wanting the independence for the colonies, that they were part of the colonies, and they were trying to design this independent system. So, with that being said about the Freemason systems, I want you to listen. Now, this is uh, 10 minutes long, but this is Mr. Max uh, McLean actually reading the Declaration of Independence. And so, as they go through this, these key points... Ask yourself which group, and they always say, you know, the king, but, you know, expand out, you know, not what you know about Jewish banking, the city of London, the entire Jewish Talmudic system, you know, who were they declaring independence from for this great experiment that was running in the face of the great work? 
So this is the actual 1776 Declaration of Independence. This is 10 minutes and 20 seconds long. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislators. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws. 
giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial, from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislators and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attention to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in General Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Okay, so that was the Declaration of Independence. So when you were going through that, you know, what images pop into your head and also how relevant so many of those are today with this globalist Jewish cultural Marxist cabal 
that is trying to destroy all nation states uh, while creating this greater Israel, Pax Judaica, under Talmudic Noahide law, with the little caveat that that perfect ashlar that the Freemasons are supposed to be building includes white genocide, that Europeans have to cease to exist so that we can get, the Jews can get their new world order with their uh, three layers that they want. Uh, and one of the things I was also bringing up was the distinction between the moderns and the ancients. And I found in my notes that uh, the moderns favored the crown while the ancients favored the colonies. Now, another distinction between the moderns and the ancients was the ancients really went with the idea of you have to be a master craftsman, i.e., you know how to use tools, you know how to design things, you know how to build things, uh, you know how to paint, you know all those things, and you have that master discipline and master spatial awareness uh, you know, you think of it in, uh, I think, very much in terms of when you study, the, like, the Zen masters, for example, or the uh, Asian martial arts masters, people that have actually worked and worked and worked and perfected, you know, put in the 10,000 hours required to master that skill. Um, the moderns are very much like we have today with the so-called speculative Masons, where basically it's all theoretical. You uh, basically are symbolically fulfilling these positions as you move through the chairs or the seats to the east in the temple. You, you start out uh, as one of the first lodge officers, and this is one of the things I did. I never got to worshipful master, but I did several seats on my way to the east, as they say. But, you know, that was based on the honeybee pattern we talked about, where uh, the life of a honeybee, the worker bee, moves through various stages, various jobs in its lifetime. It doesn't do the same job its entire life. Uh, and that also is a big lesson of what was in the design of this great experiment of self-rule. Uh, but, you know, the ancients were craftsmen that literally they're, you know, you think uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin was an incredible scientist. You know, he set up his own apparatus. He's blowing his own glass, et cetera, et cetera. You know, these men were inventors. They were sculptors. They were artists. They were writers. They were poets. They were musicians. You know, they were the true craftsmen. And it's interesting that as the Freemasons continued to evolve, it became more of the corporate business model of intransigent management style. You just have to have your numbers on the spreadsheet uh, for success. You don't really have to be able to do anything but manage um, and this was so apparent in the IBM, when I worked at IBM, uh, they literally had their own managers, and you would get a manager who had no idea of the product you were working on, no idea of its application, no idea of the customers, but he was your boss. And that was just the way I, IBM did things. And he had a desk at a certain size, and your desk was a certain size, and he had a door on his office, and you uh, did not have a door on your office. You know, those kind of things. But, uh, you know, but the key point is that there was a switch in priority as I think that Talmudic great work of the perfect Ashlar uh, overcame the great experiment. Uh, and, you know, and it basically was run out. Uh, but the point uh, I'm making as we finish up here is going back to that, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. As we continue to not only expose 
our adversary, like we did so good with CNN this week. Um, but we've got to be coming up with the solutions to fix the system. And uh, the cultural Marxists you know, want you to be a self-hating white person to say, oh, the founding fathers were all evil, satanic, horrible people, and we shouldn't follow anything they said. We should burn all their works and do something completely different. We should go with this globalist model over here. Uh, instead, you know, go back and study and look at the model of the great experiment and how it got corrupted by the great work. And I think a good um, as or a uh, you know a good vector here is. You know, we li- just listened to the Declaration of Independence. Now, you know, a few years later when they were presenting their model, you know, they are coming up with their solution. Here's the model. And listen to what this short piece prioritizes in the model they came up with. You know, the Declaration of Independence was, we don't like your model and we're going to be free of your model. The Constitution was, okay, what's our model going to be? And so this is the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And I guess one of my favorite parts of that was not only the pursuit of happiness, but the promoting the general welfare and securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, you know, our children. We are making a better world for our children, not some Talmudic hellhole that the communist you know zionist jews want to put us in you know we don't want to live in the bolshevik russia you know we don't want to live uh under the holodomor we don't want to live under the napka you know we don't want tyrannical rule we're trying to build this great awesome civilization full of beautiful things and people and leave it to our children so they can do even more wonderful, beautiful things and leave it to their children. And, you know, how much of the great work is just poison to that dream of civilization and the civilization of your children? You know, these LGBT people that aren't even having children, these people uh, that are assuming, uh, roles for teaching our children that don't have children. You know, this, my understanding is this chancellor at ASU has no children. Who is she to say what is good for the children of this area? And, you know, why so many people sacrifice blood, sweat, and tears to build that university that they want to destroy uh, with their cultural Marxism and political correctness. So anyway, so that's my soapbox on the Independence Day weekend. I'd like to thank everyone for coming out to the Breakfast Club tonight. And I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. And I hope you all have a wonderful week. And until next time, I will see you all at the rendezvous. (laughs) 